Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. Hi, I'm Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. We are going to start off this week going through more NICU content. We did touch on the NICU in Fact Sheet Friday episodes 15 and 16, so some of this should be review, but this will be a bit more in-depth than what we had covered previously. The NICU is likely a foreign area to a lot of practicing pediatric therapists, and it can feel very overwhelming. We are here to help you feel more comfortable and confident with your NICU knowledge, at least as far as the test is concerned. The book outlines four levels of perinatal care, the well baby nursery, the special care nursery, the NICU, and a regional NICU. The regional NICU being the most comprehensive place to care for the most fragile of babies and complex babies. There have been so many advances in medical care and thus a significant increase in the survival of infants with very low and extremely low birth weights. Some of the reasons for increased survival are a result of more aggressive delivery room resuscitation, administration of surfactant therapy, and an overall decrease in the rate of sepsis. The statistics show that approximately half of children surviving at extremely low birth weights have subsequent moderate to severe neurodevelopmental disabilities, including things like brain injury, retinopathy of prematurity, bronchiopulmonary dysplasia, etc. Neonates and infants in the NICU require specialized care due to the complexity of their medical conditions. They have physiologic, neurologic, and developmental vulnerabilities. Physical therapists have a great opportunity to support the needs of the child and the family during this very stressful experience. The role of the PT involves screening and examination of infants to determine the need for direct services in the NICU, referral for consultation by other healthcare professionals, and referral for developmental services post-discharge. The PT will also design and implement individualized and developmentally appropriate interventions adapted to the infant's physiologic, motor, neurologic, and developmental needs. Again, the PT is part of a comprehensive team, so working in collaboration with other healthcare professionals to meet the needs of the infant and family members is imperative. Also, incorporating family members in the provision of care to best support the infant's developmental outcome will be a major focus. The NICU is another common place where we are going to see those models of service delivery come into play. Remember when we talked about models of service in our fact sheet Friday episode 13? Our team-based service delivery model fact sheet from the APTA 
we see it in early intervention a lot, but you'll also see similar models in the NICU. Type, frequency, and variability of NICU therapeutic models are going to vary depending on the NICU. Some NICUs may be more multidisciplinary. Remember, that's the distinct but complementary roles. With this model, you need to take caution and limit fragmentation, caregiver burden, and unnecessary handling of the fragile infant. Other NICUs may be more of a transdisciplinary model. Remember, that's where team members share professional roles such that the boundaries across disciplines can become less distinct. This can reduce provider handling of the infant and allow for a more unified and integrated approach. So then the book dives into the tough topics, the theoretical frameworks and how they guide practice in the NICU. Whew, I will touch on these briefly, but you know this stuff is hard for me. So first, we can talk quickly about the family systems theory, which is the theory that individuals can be understood in terms of their relationships with the people in their family. This is huge in the NICU. The relationship between infant and parent can be very vulnerable because premature infants have poor abilities to self-regulate, they have limited attention, they are more irritable, they smile less, and they have less clear facial signals. This can really be challenging for the families and strain the parent-infant bonding. The parents may really struggle to read the baby's cues and respond to the baby's needs. This is where the PT has a role. They can help the parents read their baby's cues and provide feedback on their baby's responses. This can really jumpstart the bonding. As the parent begins to learn and recognize these cues, they're going to increase their confidence as a caregiver. Family-centered care is the recognition that family is the constant in the child's life. Families need accurate information to have contact with their infant and be fully included in their infant's care. Families should feel welcome at all times. They should be encouraged to participate in their child's care, and they should engage in a therapeutic relationship with nursing staff. Then, of course, don't forget, we also have the ICF model. I'm hoping by now this is second nature to you, but I love review, so let's talk through it quickly. What are some impairments that we're going to see in neonates? You're going to see impairments like muscle tone, range of motion, sensory organization, and postural reactions. What about limitations in activities? Those are going to be things like difficulty breathing, difficulty feeding, poor visual and auditory responsiveness, difficulty with motor activities such as head control, and difficulty with movement of hands to the mouth. And participation limitations, what are those going to look like in the NICU? Those are going to be things like decreased parent and infant interaction. How about personal factors? Those are things like the infant's health, complications they may have had, and the overall temperament. And last, environmental factors. Those are going to be things like levels of lighting, the noise levels. Last, let's just touch quickly on the synactive theory. This provides a framework for the neurobehavioral functioning of the young infant. The basic concept underlying this approach is that the infant will defend itself against stimulation if it's inappropriately timed or inappropriate in its complexity or intensity. If an inappropriate stimuli persists, the infant will no longer be able to maintain a stable balance of subsystems. So you're going to see things like a decrease or increase in the heart rate or respirations. You may observe skin color changes or the muscle tone increases or decreases. If properly timed and appropriate in complexity and intensity, 
Stimulation will cause the infant to search and move towards the stimuli while maintaining themselves in a stable balance. So then they're going to maintain that heart rate. They're going to have a good respiratory rate and good muscle tone. Intervention is going to be aimed at facilitating prolonged periods of organization by reinforcing the infant's individual self-regulatory style while supporting families to nurture and care for their infant. All right, moving on to medical complications. There are a lot of medical complications to be aware of in the NICU. We will just review, but the book goes into extreme detail in all of these. And of course, we always recommend a thorough review. The respiratory system is an obvious area of involvement. Respiratory distress syndrome is the single most important cause of illness and death in preterm infants. It is due to pulmonary immaturity and low production of surfactant. Low surfactant production results in increased surface tension, alveolar collapse, diffuse atelectasis, and decreased lung compliance. All of this causes increased pulmonary artery pressure that leads to extra pulmonary right-to-left shunting of blood and ventilation perfusion mismatching. You may see grunting respirations, retractions, nasal flaring, cyanosis, and an increased oxygen requirement. In order to have improvement in oxygenation and maintenance of optimal lung volume, the child may require things like oxygen supplementation, assisted ventilation, administration of surfactant, and ECMO. Another respiratory problem you might see is bronchopulmonary dysplasia and chronic lung disease of infancy. When a child is very premature, this can actually be during a stage of parenchymal development when oxygenation without support isn't even feasible. So then the development of this bronchopulmonary dysplasia, and then later this becomes chronic lung disease. Predictors are going to obviously include the gestational age and the need for mechanical ventilation on day seven. The incidence of bronchopulmonary dysplasia increases as birth weight decreases. Chronic lung disease is diagnosed at 36 weeks if there is a continued need for supplemental oxygen, an abnormal physical exam, and an abnormal chest radiograph. The cause is primarily related to a very premature birth and lung injury secondary to the ventilation and oxygen support provided to sustain life. Premature birth and initiation of pulmonary gas exchange interrupts normal alveolar and distal vascular development. Bronchopulmonary dysplasia is an evolving process of lung injury and recovery. Another respiratory concern that you might see is meconium aspiration syndrome. MAS is defined as respiratory distress in an infant born through meconium-stained amniotic fluid whose symptoms cannot be otherwise explained. There is usually early onset respiratory distress in term and mostly term infants. So that's definitely something to think about. If there's a question that is dealing with an infant that is not very premature or extremely premature and there's a respiratory concern, I'd usually think about meconium aspiration syndrome as possibly being the cause there. In the NICU, you will also encounter cardiac conditions like patent ductus arteriosus, pulmonary atresia, tetralogy of Fralot, coarctation of the aorta, pulmonary atresia. We went through all of these in detail in episode 21, so please refer to that episode for a full explanation of these conditions. 
Moving on to the neurologic system, a big concern is intraventricular hemorrhage and periventricular hemorrhage. This remains a major problem for the premature infant. Most hemorrhages occur within the first 48 hours after birth and are related to the fragility of the germinal matrix located on the head of the caudate nucleus and underneath the ventricular ependymal. When the hemorrhage is substantial, the ependymal breaks and the blood spills into the ventricles. IVH is graded on a four-level grading system. So in grade one, the hemorrhage is isolated just to the germinal matrix. In grade two, you have normal-sized ventricles, and the hemorrhage in the subependymal germinal matrix ruptures through the ependymal into the lateral ventricles. In grade three, you have acute ventricular dilation, and in grade four, it's going to spread into the periventricular white matter. Signs and symptoms of intraventricular hemorrhage can be subtle to catastrophic. Clinically, you may see abnormalities in level of consciousness, movement, muscle tone, respiration, eye movements, and with a catastrophic deterioration, you might have things like coma, respiratory distress, progressing to apnea, generalized tonic seizures, decerebrate posturing, generalized tonic seizures, flaccid quadriparesis. With grades one and two, there is a risk for neurosensory impairment. And with more severe cases, you have a greater risk for CP. With interventions following interventricular hemorrhage, there will be close monitoring and management of the ventricular dilation. So that might be something that requires a shunt. Another neurological concern is periventricular leukomalacia or PVL. This is a form of cerebral white matter injury consisting of periventricular focal necrosis with subsequent cystic formation and diffuse cerebral gliosis in the surrounding white matter. PVL is the leading cause of CP and commonly associated with cognitive impairment and visual disturbances. PVL occurs more frequently with decreasing gestational age and decreasing birth weight due to immature vascular supply and impairments in cerebral autoregulation. It is caused by a cascade of events leading to a reduction in that cerebral blood flow to those highly vulnerable periventricular regions of the brain, where the arterial end zones of the middle, posterior, and anterior cerebral arteries meet. The affected areas are the white matter through which the long descending motor tracts travel and motor cortex to the spinal cord. Because motor tracts involved in the lower extremities are closer to the ventricles, they're more likely to be damaged first, commonly resulting in that diplegic cerebral palsy. If the lesion extends laterally, then you might see arms involved. Visual impairments are also common if there is damage to the optic radiations. Hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, or HIE, is a result of either hypoxemia or ischemia leading to the deprivation of oxygen and glucose to the neural tissue. Hypoxemia is a decrease in the amount of oxygen circulating in the blood. Ischemia is a decrease in the blood flow able to perfuse the brain. Ischemia is more problematic due to a decrease in glucose to the brain. Symptoms of HIE typically evolve over a period of 72 hours, and the extent of damage is consistent with the timing, severity, and duration of the event. 30% of children will manifest with bilateral cerebral palsy with upper extremity and lower extremity involvement and cognitive impairment from cortical and subcortical injuries. 
Another important medical complication in the NICU is pain. A neonate cannot self-report and expresses pain through specific pain behaviors, physiological changes, and changes in cerebral blood flow. Quick physiology lesson for you. Remember that nociceptive impulses are transmitted by C fibers, also by A delta and A beta. Pain modulatory tracts, which can inhibit pain through the release of inhibitory neurotransmitters, such as serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine, are not developed until 36 to 40 weeks. So a preterm infant is actually more sensitive to pain. PTs need to be aware of methods of examination and non-pharmacological intervention to alleviate pain. So what are those physiological manifestations of pain? You're going to see things like an increased heart rate, heart rate variability, increased blood pressure, increased respirations, evidence of decreased oxygenation, pallor or flushing, diaphoresis, palmar sweating, you might see increased muscle tone or dilated pupils, and you might even see lab evidence of metabolic and endocrine changes. This is where you have to make sure you know your normal values so you can be familiar with what an increase would be to signify a problem. Some behavioral responses to pain might be sustained and intense crying or grimacing, a furrowed brow or a quivering chin, if they have their eyes really tightly closed or if they're withdrawing their limbs or thrashing, they might have some rigidity or clenching of their fists. Another common one they mentioned were like fingers splaying and the limbs flying into extension. An expert physical therapist needs to be familiar with some of the non-pharmacological interventions to help alleviate pain. So these are going to be things like decreasing the number of noxious stimulus, decreasing stimulation, you could swaddle them, do some non-nutritive sucking, tactile comfort measure, rocking, some sort of containment measure, or music. Facilitated tucking is another non-pharmacological intervention, which involves kind of containing the infant and softly holding the infant's extremities in a soft flexion position. They also do things like administer breast milk or a sucrose solution, during some painful procedures as well. Reflux is another medical complication to be familiar with. So you have the GER, so gastroesophageal reflux, and that's just the passage of the gastric contents back into the esophagus. This is a normal physiological process that occurs several times a day in infants, children, and adults. GERD, so G-E-R-D, involves more troublesome symptoms or complications associated with that reflux. So this is when you're going to see things like vomiting, irritability, poor weight gain or dysphagia, abdominal or substernal pain, cough, laryngitis. Different management techniques for GERD are going to be things like changes in positioning during feeding, pharmacological approaches in severe cases, and they might even need surgery. Neonatal abstinence syndrome or neonatal withdrawal is a term used to describe an array of signs and neurobehaviors seen in the newborn after an abrupt termination of gestational exposure to substances taken by the mother during pregnancy. We're looking primarily at opioids here. So typical presentation is going to be a really high-pitched cry, irritability, disturbances in their sleep-wake cycle, 
hyperactive primitive reflexes, transient tone alterations, feeding difficulties, GI disturbances, autonomic dysfunction, and a whole other thing. These are typically present within 72 hours after birth. The baby may require admission to the NICU for close monitoring and pharmacologic treatment. We can offer supportive measures such as non-nutritive sucking, positioning, swaddling, gentle handling, demand feeding, minimal stimulation, and environmental modifications. Necrotizing enterocolitis is an acute inflammatory disease of the bowel due to impaired blood flow to the intestine that results in death of the mucosal cell lining and the bowel wall, making it permeable to gas-forming bacteria that invades that damaged area. Signs include vomiting, distension of the abdomen, increased gastric aspirates, passing of bloody stools, lethargy, decreased urine output, and alterations in respiratory status. This definitely requires surgical intervention. Retinopathy of prematurity is caused by proliferation of abnormal blood vessels in the newborn retina. Outcome varies from normal vision to a total loss of vision. There is a five-stage classification system with stage one being the most mild, and stage five being complete retinal detachment. The last medical complication we will discuss is hyperbilirubinemia, aka jaundice. This is going to be due to accumulation of excessive amounts of bilirubin in the blood. It is common in premature infants with immature hepatic function. Treatment is going to be phototherapy. The purpose of the PT examination in the NICU is to identify impairments in body and structure that contribute to activity limitations and participation restrictions, to identify individualized responses to stress and self-regulation, to identify the developmental status of the infant, to identify the needs for skilled positioning and handling, and to identify environmental adaptations to optimize growth and development. Goals for infant participation include age-appropriate developmental activities, things like feeding, tucking, self-soothing, and social interaction with caregivers. Your PT assessment will likely be a combination of observation and handling, usually over several sessions. Infants in the NICU will likely not tolerate full standardized developmental assessment. The assessment helps describe successes and difficulties in achieving and maintaining self-regulation and identifies the strategies that best support the infant's own self-regulatory efforts and developmental level of the infant. PT interventions must be appropriately timed and modulated to match the neurobehavioral profile of the infant because handling of a medically fragile infant can impose physiological stress. Examination and intervention should be in partnership with the family to assist with bonding, facilitate developmentally supportive positioning and handling, and allow for carryover of therapeutic strategies. Make sure you know the six behavioral states of consciousness. This is the deep sleep, light sleep, drowsy, quiet awake, active awake, and crying. As infants mature, they are better able to transition smoothly and predictably between these states. We can help by educating parents and staff to identify state transitions and optimize the environment to facilitate smooth transitions to and from sleep. Infants with neonatal abstinence syndrome have specific difficulty with this state organization. 
we need to observe the autonomic system. Roughly, neonate's heart rate is going to be between 120 and 180 with a respiratory rate between 40 and 60. Note that infants with chronic lung disease have limited endurance for functional activities and working with this infant requires frequent breaks, appropriate pacing, and environmental modifications. When observing the motor system, look at muscle tone and posture at rest and active movements during quiet awake periods, routine care, social interactions, and feeding. Movements should be interpreted according to the progression of active flexion patterns that emerge with increasing gestational age. So remember at 32 weeks for the lower extremities, 35 weeks for the upper extremities, and 37 to 39 weeks for the head and trunk. The immature neuromotor system often precludes independent anti-gravity flexion movements and predisposes the infant to compensations like that retracted scapulae, externally rotated and abducted lower extremities, and extension and rotation postures of the cervical spine and trunk. Infants with IVH are at a high risk for impairments, so note asymmetries in postural muscles, asymmetries in active movements of the extremities, absence of isolated distal or rotational movements. Also note any clonus and observe muscle tone at rest and during active movements. Also note the infant's social interaction by presenting visual and auditory stimulation to the infant. The PT should offer opportunities for the infant to interact because these complex tasks can be distressful and overwhelm the infant's capacity for self-regulation. The PT should also facilitate social interaction between the infants and the caregivers by modeling developmentally supportive interactions, modifying the environment as needed, and providing parents with anticipatory guidance about the progression of social interactions. There are many tests and measures used to objectively document infant functioning over time and identify the need for developmental follow-up and intervention after discharge. Testing requires judgment and monitoring of physiologic stability to determine whether the administration of the test is tolerated and representative of the infant's abilities. I am not going to go over all of these as the list is extensive, but familiarize yourself with some of the main ones. I'm going to wrap up this extremely long chapter by discussing some interventions. NICU developmental care in general uses environmental interventions such as sound or light reduction, along with sleep preservation or clustered care in order to support the infant's development. PTs provide direct interventions and help parents learn how to provide movement experiences for their infant to address impairments in body functions or structures and or activity limitations. Some of these direct interventions include positioning, so using blanket rolls or positioning aids to encourage the midline head position and the arms and the legs to be in a flexed position and close to the body. Midline head and head elevation 30 degrees for 72 hours after delivery is best practice to reduce interventricular hemorrhage. Make sure to offer a variety of positions to prevent skeletal deformations like plagiocephaly. Massage is another option. It ranges from light pressure with hands staying still to kinesthetic program with a full body massage when the child is nearing discharge. No studies found negative results with this. An increased weight gain and decreased length of stay have been found. 
facilitated handling. So things like facilitated tucking during suctioning has been found to reduce stress and pain in some studies. Facilitation may promote movement patterns similar to those used by the infant while in utero, and they may reduce maladaptive motor behaviors during caregiving. Parent interaction is another very important thing. So making sure that we're teaching families about kangaroo care, facilitated tucking, and how to incorporate sensory monitoring practices into their interactions. PTs have an important role in helping parents prepare to support their infant's development during and after the transition to home. Educating caregivers to identify the infant's readiness cues for social interaction will increase their ability to identify opportunities for tummy time, reaching, and other developmental play that supports motor and cognitive development. Therapists also have an important role in engaging parents in things like the NICU follow-up programs and community-based interactions. Life after the NICU discharge involves many specialist appointments, and families really need a clear understanding of the recommendations for both medical and developmental follow-up. Next, we are moving on to early intervention services under the IDEA. We have talked about this so many times over the course of our episodes and Fact Sheet Fridays that a lot of this content should mostly be review for you at this point. IDEA Part C authorizes federal assistance to states to implement a system of early intervention services for eligible infants and toddlers from birth to three years of age. The law mandates family-centered services in natural environments to provide the child's development and participation in daily activities and routines. Remember that term, natural environment. Early intervention is a multifaceted process to support infants and toddlers with developmental delay and disability and their families. Early intervention includes Developmental services that are provided under public supervision are provided at no cost except where federal or state law provides for a system of payments by families, but generally there's really no cost to the family. And they are designed to meet the developmental needs of an infant or toddler with a disability. Services must be developmental and involve parent collaboration. The book has a few great charts for you to review on services included in EI and conceptual framework for the physical therapist. These can be found in chapter 30 of Campbell. There are five major components of service delivery under IDEA Part C. These include a public awareness program, a central directory of information, a comprehensive child find system, comprehensive evaluations and assessments, and an individualized family service plan, or IFSP. Family-centered care is brought up frequently throughout this chapter, and you even heard Sheila talk about it in the NICU section. It is considered best practice in providing health care to all children, but is essential because in early intervention, families are considered a direct recipient of services. Parent self-efficacy has a direct influence on child development, adaptive behavior, and psychological well-being. Family-centered interventions commonly uses a philosophy and approach to service delivery 
based on core beliefs of respect for children and families, appreciation of the family's impact on the well-being of the child, and family professional collaboration. Positive outcomes are associated with communication, information sharing, collaboration, fostering family involvement and choice, building on strengths, and providing support. So really, you're not just working with the child here, you're really working with the family as well. And just really making sure that you're communicating with the family, sharing all that information, making sure the family feels as involved as possible, and building on the strengths of the child and the family. It's really like a coaching model. You're really more of a coach and a facilitator than you are hands-on therapist only doing the work. Exactly. Provider behaviors fostering parent involvement and choice demonstrate more positive outcomes. Basically, you want to make sure that the interventions are not only geared towards the child, but towards the family as well. Keep this in mind when answering questions related to early intervention. While research is limited on physical therapy and early intervention, outcomes for families and children's participating in EI services are generally positive. In EI, physical therapists provide interventions to promote children's activities and participation, including motor learning, environmental adaptation, assistive technology, family support, and education. They also have a role in health promotion and prevention. The major elements of early intervention include team collaboration, evaluation and assessment, the IFSP, providing services in natural environments, and transition. Team collaboration is the process of forming partnerships among family members, service providers, supervisors, administrators, systems of care, and the community with the common goal of enhancing the child. Care coordination is based on the assumption that integrated and coordinated services will result in improved outcomes, reduced costs, and more positive experiences for the children and families. Evaluation and assessment is also essential to early intervention services. It must be comprehensive and non-discriminatory. Comprehensive developmental tests and measures may be used for determining eligibility and documenting developmental change. Evaluation and assessment is to be provided in an individualized, strength-based, and collaborative manner. Family members may be involved in the evaluation and assessment by interviews or guiding the process by interacting with their child. The first step to any evaluation or assessment is the family interview, followed by an observation of the child in their natural environment. There that is again, natural environment. Observations in the natural environment could include family routines, parent-child interaction, play, and other daily activities. Going back a little bit, talking about performing the evaluation and getting the family members involved that may be a good way to maybe make the parents feel more comfortable with having you in their home providing these services and as well as get that shy child kind of out of their shell and comfortable doing some of the movements. 
So here's a question for you for your own reflection and to test your own knowledge. What are some examples of evaluation and assessment tools that can be used in the early intervention setting? Take some time and just jot down as many as you can right now. Just give yourself a few seconds and do it. The next component is the Individualized Family Service Plan or the IFSP. The IFSP is a document that contains information on the child, family, and measurable goals for different services. The measurable goals are also called outcome statements. There are two types of outcomes, child-focused and family-focused. A child-focused outcome is grounded in important routines or activities in the child's life that are meaningful to the family. A family-focused outcome is based on the family's priority and interests and supports their access to community resources and supports. Well-written IFSP outcome statements reflect real-life situations, cross-developmental domains, are discipline and jargon-free, emphasize the positive, and use active words. Next is providing services in natural environments. According to the IDEA, natural environments are described as settings that are natural or normal for the child's age peers who have no disabilities. A natural environment can be the home or places such as daycares, grocery stores, playgrounds, and libraries. Remember, early intervention services must be provided in a natural environment. Star that, circle it, fireworks all around it. At this point, we've talked about it so many times, this should be ingrained in your brain. Lastly is the transition plan. It is an essential role in assuring the child's progression in the educational system and participation in the community. The transition they refer to is the transition between IDEA Part C, which is, as you know, early intervention, to IDEA Part B, school-based services. To ensure a successful transition, the physical therapist in the family must be knowledgeable about IDEA Part B, collaborate with early intervention and preschool teams, collaborate with families and provide them with resources, information, and support as they prepare for their child's transition, and focus on preparing children for preschool environment and promote the development of school readiness skills. There is a good fact sheet from the APTA that we went over in episode 15.1 Fact Sheet Friday that gives some additional information on a successful transition from part C to part B. Go back and listen to that episode again for some additional information. Chapter 30 in Campbell also has some additional charts that go over intervention strategies, strategies to prepare a child for preschool, and strategies for collaborating with families to support transition from early intervention. Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next week. And remember, you totally got this.